The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On August 2nd, 1980, 18-year-old Candace Roughsurface vanished while out for the evening in Mobridge, South Dakota. Nine months passed before the young mother was found, but it took close to 16 years for those responsible for Candace's disappearance to be held accountable for their crimes. Join me now as we take a look into the disappearance and murder of Candace Roughsurface, a beautiful young mother whose life was cut tragically short. We'll trace the long, winding journey Candace's loved ones traveled on their pursuit of justice and what their lives have been like since her life was taken. In early August of 1980, one of Candace's sisters dropped her sibling off on Main Street in Mobridge. Candace was looking forward to a night out and having a few drinks. It was the last time she would be seen alive. Mobridge is a working-class city located to the east of the Missouri River. It serves as a trading post for those living in smaller towns in the area, and considering the influx of fishermen in the summer months, Tourists and locals alike have referred to the town as the walleye capital of the world. As the closest city to where Candace lived, even though it offered a limited nightlife, it made sense that Candace chose it as her destination on the night she vanished. Candace, a member of the Lakota tribe, lived on the Standing Rock Reservation on the western side of the Missouri River, located about 26 miles from Mobridge and over the main bridge that spans the river. The immense 900,000-acre reservation straddles North and South Dakota, and over 6,000 Lakota, one of the three Sioux tribes of the plains, call the reservation home. At the time of her disappearance, Candace lived in Kennel, a small isolated town on the Standing Rock Reservation that didn't even have a single store. Homer Roughsurface, Candace's son, who was only two years old when his mother vanished, paints a picture of how isolated Kennel could seem. I guess the biggest thing would be if you have to get groceries, you know, like where you live, you probably just go down a block or two or something and you can get a loaf of bread and milk and your basic needs every day. To this day, we actually still have to drive 30 miles to go shopping. If we want to go and get bigger things for shopping, we'd have to drive closer to 100 miles just to go to a nearest Walmart. In Kennel, Candace and Homer 
lived with her mother and her brother, Robbie, at the building that used to serve as the town hall. The town had been situated on fertile land on the bank of the Missouri River, but decades ago, the town was relocated to a parched, unforgiving plain when the Army Corps of Engineers were ordered to dam the river, flooding the land where Kennel once stood. Homer describes the house he grew up in and what he was told about Kennel's relocation. Some of the houses around had furnaces and, you know, hot water, everything like that. The house I grew up in was actually the town hall, basically, when Ken was first moved up on the hill. After they flooded the river, Kennel had to move up on top of the hill, and that was the first building that was up there. So I don't remember the exact story, but somehow my grandma got that place, and that's what we lived in. Faced with few opportunities, poverty and isolation, life on the reservation was sometimes difficult. Homer explains how the conditions impacted his childhood. As far back as I can remember growing up, we had running water, didn't have hot water, didn't have a tub or shower, so I had to wash up in the sink as a kid. I had to cut wood, so we still burned wood. Going to school, I had to actually get bus to school like 25 miles away. And that was all through up until I graduated. We had lived in that house probably until I was like 12. And then we got a newer updated house, whatever. But just going up like that was humbling, I guess, for me. Within this challenging environment, Candace was raised alongside her 11 brothers and sisters. She left high school during her sophomore year after giving birth to Homer at the age of 16. But at the time of her disappearance, she was working on her high school diploma. She was a hard-working single mother who worked many jobs to try to make ends meet, including working at the Yak, a trade school located on the reservation. More importantly, Candace grew into a beautiful and loving young woman, Clara. Candace's older sister vividly remembers how Candace, although small in stature, had a huge heart. She always lifted people's spirits whenever she entered a room. Oh, Candy was such a loving little girl. She was so tiny. She was like 95 pounds and 5'1 or 5'2. Tiny little girl. And she just loved everybody. As soon as she came to our house, She'd run in and she'd run to me and kiss me and hug me every time. There's not a time she didn't come to our house and she didn't show her love for us. Homer didn't get the chance to form many of his own memories of his mother because she was taken from him when he was only a toddler. But when he recollects what others have told him about her, their stories center on Candace's work ethic, positivity, and cheerful disposition. Everybody I talked to said she was always happy, fun to be around, hardworking, just a very positive person. About everybody I can remember talking to, they always said that she was always, always had a smile on her face, always happy, and always, you know, willing to help. On the night of Candace's disappearance, 
The last her family knew, she was heading to a local bar in Mowbridge. The now defunct bar, called Joker's Wild, was known to serve alcohol to underage patrons. Clara recalls the last time she saw her sister alive. I was downtown at the bar. It was on the weekend I was drinking, and um, she came in there. She came from my other sisters who lived by Wakwala. That's between here and Moorbridge. She came over there, and she said um, she was down at the Joker's Wild. She asked me if I had any money, so I gave her a few dollars. When Candace didn't come home that night, her mother knew something was wrong. The family didn't want to believe that something terrible had happened to Candace. They held out hope. She had merely gone somewhere for a few days, and rumors circulating around the town supported this theory. Clara explains. Uh, we all just knew because she never came home. Automatically knew that she was gone. We thought she went somewhere. And matter of fact, people were saying they saw her get on a bus and all this, but, you know, just rumors. Growing more and more worried as the hours passed, Candace's loved ones searched everywhere they could think of. They also contacted Candace's friends to see if they'd heard from her. Clara thinks back to what those first frantic hours and days were like. We looked for her. We looked all over. When we'd drive along the road, I'd be looking in the ditches and everything to see if I could see her, you know, just calling different people and asking them questions. Some of her friends, nobody knew anything. When they couldn't find Candace, the rough surfaces knew something was dreadfully wrong. Candace was an excellent mother who would not have abandoned her two-year-old son, Homer. Clara remembers how well Candace had cared for Homer and how her love for her son only raised their concerns about Candace's whereabouts. She was forever taking care of her cute little baby. He was the cutest, cutest little kid. She'd never leave her little baby. Candace's mother, Alberta, realized deep down that something terrible had happened to her daughter. So she contacted the authorities and reported Candace missing. The police, however, were at a loss to where to start. They feared foul play and stated, people don't just disappear off the face of the earth without someone knowing something. But whenever they followed up on a tip, they ran into a dead end. Approximately nine months later, on May 19, 1981, a rancher stumbled upon Candace's skeletal remains in the Missouri River's shallow, receding waters. The police failed to inform the rough surfaces that Candace had been found. Instead, the distraught family learned about the discovery from the newspaper. Clara remembers what was reported. It said this guy was riding. Steve Sheldon, his name was. He worked at a ranch or something. I owned one. He was riding and he saw something down in that creek. So he went over there and he said, Oh my God, that's candy. I bet that's candy. She was laying there, you know, 
hardly anything on her bones. When an autopsy revealed that the young mother had been shot five times in her head and back, federal officials were called in to help with the investigation. However, without any witnesses coming forward or any real physical evidence to go on, Candace's case reached a standstill. Although law enforcement officials stated that they periodically reviewed the case, the case went cold for almost 16 years. Homer learned about his mother's death at a young age from his grandmother, but the details and waiting for answers were just too painful for his family to openly discuss. I think my grandma probably told me when I was young, but um, we didn't really talk about it a lot because of the way it happened was so cruel or whatever. And it's a hard subject for my grandma to get into because they never found out who killed her for like 16 years. Thinking back to how his grandmother, Alberta, explained what happened to Candace, Homer struggles to find the words to describe the pain he felt after his mother was killed. From what my grandma told me, you know, it was just like, oh, another Indian got killed. Like they treated it like it was somebody ran over a dog or something. That's about as far as I can explain it. Finally, in the fall of 1999, the rough surface's painful weight for at least some sense of closure came to an end. A man named James E. Stroh contacted the authorities and made a startling revelation. Stroh and his cousin Nicholas Schur had been the ones responsible for Candace's disappearance and murder when they were just teenagers. Sheriff James Spirey stated that Shear's name had come up at the start of the investigation, but the police had gotten sidetracked by another lead that never amounted to anything, and they didn't refocus their attentions on Sure. Clara looks back to how the truth started to finally come out about what happened. He was getting a divorce or something, and his wife or his mother reported them because he had told her what they did. So that's how they found out it was Nick Shear and his cousin that did that to her. During the many interviews with Stroh and Schur, and over the course of their hearings, details slowly emerged about what happened to Candace in early August of 1980. Stroh said he was vacationing with his family and stopped in Mowbridge for a few days when he and Schur ran across Candace at the local bar, Joker's Wild. From there, the two cousins took Candace Insure's pickup truck to a house party at a trailer just north of town, being hosted by a man named Stephen Sheldons. Stroh mentioned that while they were at the party, someone tried something with Candace. Angry and upset, Candace wanted to leave, and so all three returned to the truck. It was during this ride that the night took a horrible turn. Clara has her theory as to why Candace went with Stroh and Schur on the night she was killed. She believes that Candace likely trusted the decent-looking young men 
who came from a well-respected family, believing they could get her home safely. They told her they'd bring her home that way. She went with them, but i that's just what I thought. I don't know. They were going to bring her back to Canada. Stroh alleged that Candace, who was trapped between Stroh and Schur in the truck, physically and verbally threatened both he and Schur. Candace reportedly told them she knew their names and knew some guy who would beat them up. Maybe she didn't want to go with them and wanted to go home or whatever, and they wouldn't let her. And so she probably hit him or something because she was a tough little girl. She held her own. After Candace supposedly struck Stroh, Schur flipped out. He started screaming and drove into a field and ordered Stroh out of the pickup. Schur then pulled Candace out and knocked her to the ground. He then proceeded to rape her and, according to Stroh, ordered him to do the same. Stroh told investigators that after they raped Candace, Schur went and retrieved a 22 caliber gun from his truck. As she lay on the ground, Schur shot Candace four times in the back and head. He then handed the gun to Stroh and demanded that he shoot her as well. Stroh then shot Candace once. After splitting the few dollars the pair found in her purse, the teens chained Candace's naked, beaten body to the back of Schur's truck so they wouldn't get blood inside of the vehicle. The cousins dragged Candace almost a mile to the Missouri River, where they dumped her body. The next day, Stroh testified that they both returned to bury the evidence of their crime. On the day that Candace's mother, Alberta, reported her daughter missing, the Stroh's family holiday ended and they returned back to Wisconsin. Nine months later, a rancher named Stephen, the very same man who hosted the house party on the night of Candace's disappearance, spotted her body along the muddy bank of the Missouri River and called authorities. After thoroughly searching the area, the police came across shell casings and a piece of an eyeglass frame with the name Candace Rough Surface on it. Candace had been found. Although Stroh confessed, his arrest was really just a matter of time. Over the years, he confided with several family members about his involvement, including his ex-wife. No doubt, at least, in part compelled by a recent bitter divorce, Stroh's ex-mother-in-law had already approached the local police in Wisconsin and shared his secret before he decided to come forward. At the time of Candace's murder, Stroh was only 15 and Schur was 16. When asked how she felt when she learned that a 15- and 16-year-old had murdered her sister, Clara says, I felt so terrible and sad and something could happen to such a little tiny girl. The community of Mowbridge was stunned to learn that two sons, one from a very prominent family in town, had committed the shocking crime. Schur's older brothers, 
Twins, Jim and Bill, had been members of the United States wrestling team and competed in the 1988 Summer Olympic Games. They performed well, with Bill winning a bronze medal and Jim placing seventh overall. Mobridge's Arena, which draws people from miles around to attend everything from sporting events to farm shows, was even named after Jim and Bill Schur and a local Yanktonite Dakota artist, Oscar Howe, whose murals adorned the arena's walls. The thought that a member of the Schur family could have played a role in Candace's murder was almost impossible for the Mobridge residents to believe. Eventually, all doubt of their guilt was erased. Because Stroh cooperated with the investigators and agreed to testify against his cousin, the charges he faced were less severe than Schur's. Stroh pled guilty to second-degree manslaughter and aggravated assault in 1996, telling the court, I pray that the Lord will heal the hurt with his love and forgiveness. Even though he admitted his involvement, Stroh remained steadfast that Schur was the instigator. According to Stroh, he had only participated out of fear of his own safety. Regardless, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Stroh was released in 2004. On the other hand, Schur was initially charged with first-degree murder and could have faced the death penalty. Although it took some time, he also took a plea deal offered by the state pleading guilty to first-degree manslaughter. Schur was sentenced to 100 years in prison. Candace's mother died over a decade ago, but she was alive to see Stroh and Schur punished for killing her daughter. Homer points to the impact the experience had on his grandmother. It was really hard at first bringing up old feelings. You could see it in her face. She was just worn out. After they convicted them, she was a lot better. It's, I don't know, it's just hard for Hard to deal with. Candace's sister Clara attended Shear's hearing and shares what it was like seeing him face to face in the courtroom. He looked like just a normal kid, you know, he was so handsome and he would look like he wouldn't do something like that. But you never know who does stuff like that. You can't trust anybody nowadays. When Clara was asked how she thought it was possible that the two cousins managed to live their lives as if nothing had happened for 16 long years, she explains. I don't know how they lived with themselves after doing that. They must have never had no conscience. What they did was inhumane. On April 17, 2019, Sure was granted parole after only serving 23 years of his 100-year sentence for Candace's brutal rape and murder. The State Board of Pardons and Parolees say that Schur will be released as soon as a parole plan is in place. Much like when the police failed to notify the rough services that Candace's body had been found, the authorities failed to inform Homer that his mother's murderer had been granted parole. Homer learned about Schur's impending release from the media. I was just dumbfounded when uh, I found out he wasn't even doing a quarter of his sentence. 
South Dakota Constitution states that the family has to be notified if there's a parole coming up. Family must be notified, you know, and uh, to find out from a reporter was just, it was kind of sickening. I didn't know what to think of our justice system. You know, how could the people you're supposed to believe in to protect you let something like that go? Homer was stunned that even the prosecutor wasn't aware of Schur's approaching parole. The other day, I was driving home and actually had a different number call, so I answered it. And it was actually the prosecutor that prosecuted accused. And he told me that even they weren't notified. So he was going to go and find out today, see if he can, you know, put some kind of appeal in, stop it. Candace's murder has had a long-lasting impact on both Kennel and Mowbridge, but not necessarily in the ways one might expect. When Candace's loved ones and members from her community first learned that an individual from a high-profile Mowbridge family was involved in her murder, they were concerned that justice might not be served. Although Stroke confessed right away, Sure held out for some time and was out on a $200,000 bond before eventually taking a plea deal. In the weeks following Stroh's confession, to remind Mobridge residents that Candace's life mattered, her loved ones, and more than 300 supporters held justice for candy walks. Clara shared how instead of tearing the communities apart, the walks helped to bridge differences and in some ways brought people together. We had justice for candy walks, and they walked through Mobridge, drove and walked and horseback and everything. And, and there was a lot of Caucasian people all standing along the way, waving and saying good luck and all that. At one point, there was talk of removing the artist Mr. Howe's name from the Sure Howe Arena, so it wouldn't be sullied by the Shures. But Candace's mother said, that was taking things too far. The two Sure brothers that the arena was named after were not even involved in her daughter's death. She insisted, we don't want violence. We want the men who did this to be put away so they never hurt anyone else's daughter. We don't want to hurt innocent people. We don't want to be like them. One person hurt deeply by Candace's murder is her son Homer. After her death, he was forced to grow up fast, and his life was changed forever. Had to learn how to do a lot of things, probably before I should have. You know, I learned how to drive when I was like eight. Had a job by the time I was 12. Yeah, not having any parents. I mean, I kind of had to grow up pretty quick and missed out on a lot. When Homer was 14 years old, he went to live with his father, who he barely knew. In the beginning, they had a turbulent relationship, and in an attempt to gain some control over Homer, his father took away his car and tried to get Homer to quit his job. Instead of complying, Homer, who struggled with authority, ran away. Shortly thereafter, he was arrested for burglary. When Homer attended the convictions of his mother's murderers, he was taken to the courthouse by police escort. For the next several years, Homer was in and out of juvenile detention centers 
and was headed down a self-destructive path. Thankfully, things started to turn around for Homer. When relatives made it possible for him to leave the reservation and pursue an education in California. When I moved away, I was right after high school. I went to college. I was down in California for about four or five years. I went to um, school for automotive technology and design. I couldn't find a job actually that paid what I wanted. So I actually went down to Gulf Point, Mississippi and learned how to weld and then came back up here. Around here, the biggest job around here is like construction, like road construction. So that's actually what I've been doing for over 20 years. Family ties eventually brought Homer back to the Standing Rock Reservation. I couldn't take being away from my grandma very long. We saw I always have to come back and see her. So that was like the main, the main reason. If I could take my grandma with me any, everywhere, I probably would have never came back. But she's the one that was stuck here. In many ways, Homer has tried to move on, but he still bears the scars of his mother's death. I grew up with a lot of emotional issues. To this day, I still have a hard time trusting people. When asked how Clara wants people to remember her little sister Candace, she requests, people remember that she was a happy person and a loving mother. I want them to remember her as a happy beautiful little tiny girl that loved the whole world and she loved her little boy the most. We all took care of Homer. We called him our baby. Candace's memorial service enabled her family and friends to say goodbye and it also brought people together. Claire explains. We had a burial, church services and memorial service here in Kennel. She's buried out here at our Catholic cemetery. She's buried right beside my brother, Harley. There was a lot of people and almost everybody from Kennel. The service was heartbreaking and beautiful. It focused on how Candace had finally made her way home. Oh, it was sad. And we had a nice service, memorial service. And there was a medicine man from... Wakbali, he was Lakota, his name was Reginald Birdhorse. He had the services, and we had wiping of the tears. That was after her burial. It was nice. They made a song for her in Lakota, and the name of it was She Came Home. It was in the Indian way, it's called Tigli Huniwi. She Came Home. It was heartbreaking, but at the same time, we were all relieved that we had her back. We knew where she was now. Candace has come home. And one of the places she lives is in Homer. Not only did he move back to the reservation to be closer to his grandmother, but also he has five children who he speaks of with affection in his voice. Candace's love of family lives on in Homer, and it will be passed down for generations to come.
we'd like to give a special thank you to Homer and Clara for helping us share Candace's story. And thanks to Christine Penhale for researching and writing this episode. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Writing About Crime. I'm Bonnie Lee, the host of Writing About Crime, a Canadian true crime podcast that looks for the story behind criminal cases, the people, the places, and the events that join together to create a narrative, not a scoop. I am not reading you the news. I am writing about crime. I hope you'll join me on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And Murderish. Hi, I'm Jamie, host of Murderish, a true crime podcast that provides a 3D look at gripping murder cases from beginning to end. You'll get to know the victims and perpetrators, how their worlds collided, and what went down during trial. I also share some of my own personal experiences, like the time a stranger came into my bedroom at night. Yeah, that really happened. And I walk you through all the details of that terrifying night. Have you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall during a murder trial? You'll get that opportunity on Murderish, as I share my experience being a jury foreman on a first-degree murder trial. Search Murderish in your favorite podcatcher app, hit subscribe, and start binging. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run